Welcome to Percussion Masters, Life Behind the Drums. This is about lifetime stories, about motivation, art and decisions and choices people made to become the one they are today. Percussion Masters from all over the world. These are their stories. Welcome. I'm your host, Francesca Santangelo. This was recorded on 27th of May, 2022. Thank you very much, John, for being here for the first episode. So a pleasure for me, and I'm so honored to have you here. And um, yeah, hello, John. <laughs> well, I'm delighted to be here. And as, as you know, and I've told you before, Freiburg in the Hochschule is, is places that I'm familiar with. I fell in love with this, this place many years ago. And uh, I envy you and Ben for having a very nice place to live. Actually, um, I'm really happy to be here in Freiburg. For me, it's also a city, yeah, really important city for me. And, um, and I will now really would love to introduce yourself with a little introduction I've prepared and um, I have had the great honor and pleasure of meeting John Beck personally and to have met him almost 10 years in a row. The first meeting I will never forget, a very friendly man who stood in front of me and introduced himself. Hello. My name is John Beck. And this man who introduced himself so dignified and impressive, I have the chance to translate many of his masterclasses at the Days of Percussion in Italy. Um, what one may learn from him is pure gold. One thing I recognize all over these years his incredible high level of preparation, his respect for the students and for the colleagues, his constant professionalism and great humor, and his respect and joy regarding percussion. And last but not least, his incredible and tireless energy on stage before, during, and after the concert is indescribable. For the hopefully few young musicians who don't know who John Beck is, a living legend. John Beck made music history as his teacher William Street did, and his students did as well. He taught in the Isthmus School of Music for 49 years, heard 1,816 students take the audition exams, was timpanist by the Rochester Philharmonic Orchestra. He has made numerous solo appearances. He was percussionist in residence at the Royal Academy of Music in Copenhagen, Denmark, the Royal Nother Academy of Music in Manchester, England. He is a conductor. He also contributed articles to the Grove Dictionary of American Music and the World Book Encyclopedia. And he published 
his compositions were published from Kaffisha, Boston music, Kendo music, Meredith music, Wimbledon music, and so on. He was president of the New York State Percussive Art Society and president of the National Percussive Art Society. He won the Eastman's Eisenhardt Award for Excellence in Teaching and the Arts and Cultural Council of Greater Rochester Award for Contributions to the Arts. He was inducted into the Percussive Art Society Hall of Fame. And his book, Percussion Matters, which is a pleasure to read, live at the Eastman School of Music, was published in December 2011 by Meliora Press and in print of the University of Rochester Press. So, and that's just a sample of his richly varied career. And one thing is constant. He was always on the road to become a better percussionist or to help someone to improve their skills. So once again, I am very, very grateful. What a honor for me. Welcome once again, John. <laughs> and now you hear, <laughs> Well, thank you. Thank you, Frank, Francesca. Uh, 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 you made me feel very important there with all your words. I, I know that the words came out of my, uh, my book. I, I did teach, or I actually, I auditioned 1,000, uh, what was it, 816 students, yeah. and I accepted 258. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm a hard-nosed teacher and I don't accept everyone, but there was a reason for those numbers. And the numbers are that at the Eastman School, there were only four students in each class. So each time I listened to perhaps uh, an audition uh, session of 60 students, I could only choose four. Four freshmen, four sophomores, four juniors, four seniors. And so the numbers uh, came out to be like, you read that there are 258 students uh, accepted to the Eastman School. That was four in each class. Now it's a little different. And uh, now that I've retired from the school and there's more than one teacher there, there's Michael Burrett and there's uh, Brian Stotts, who is the percussion tech taking care of all the, the, the work and things that I used to do myself and just didn't have time to do anymore. And, and there's also another, uh, uh, Chip Ross is, uh, is a timpani player now uh, who's doing some teaching. So all of these um, facts come into play that the numbers are kind of astronomical in that 1,816, mm -hmm. but I only accepted 254. But I will say this. The 254 that I accepted, fortunately for me, are all doing well. Now, they aren't all around. Some of them may have gotten into other things in life other than percussion. But when they're all over the United States and also in, in Europe in some places, that they are doing what they wanted to do. They are doing why what they wanted to do when they came to the Eastern School of Music. And that is to learn percussion 
as an art and also as a business, because percussion is more than just beating a drum. You know, I never knew at the age of 10 when I started playing and had my first lesson where beating a drum would take me. Hmm. But honestly, it's taken me all around the world. And it even took me into the White House here in the United States when I was in the Marine Band. I used to see the president of the United States. I didn't. Um, we weren't buddies or anything like that. But uh, I played for him, and that was Dwight Eisenhower. Now, that's the name that maybe a lot of people listening to this never heard of. But Dwight Eisenhower was the famous uh, military person, commander of the armed forces in World War II. And then he became the president of the United States. And I played for him many times. And he used to thank me, not personally, but his hand waved. Hi, you know. <laughs> so that, that's how this all came about. And uh, I think that's enough to tell you why those numbers are like they are. You have more questions? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There are a few questions um, because uh, you know I really had um, it was a pleasure to read your book. It was um, and not only a pleasure, but it was really uh, an insight of all these um, of the actually of the century uh, uh, um, for the percussion history. And um, I would like to start after this. Um, I will come back to this um, to this story, to these words you tell. Um, I would like to start with this question for you. Um, where and when did your fascination for drums and percussion start? That, that is a good question and one that might surprise you and anyone listening to this podcast that we're doing. I'm from a small town in Pennsylvania, central Pennsylvania, called Lewisburg, Pennsylvania. It's a very small town. It's sort of like Freiburg in a way, but we don't have, we don't have the vineyards like you have there. Uh, and, but there are two institutions in Lewisburg. One is Bucknell University which is a well-known school in the United States. And the other institution is the Eastern Federal Penitentiary. Hmm. That's the infamous side there. So we have educational on one side of the town and a prison on the other side of this town. Now, that has nothing to do with why I started playing drums, but that gives you an idea of where I'm from. And in my it, uh, little town of Lewisburg, Pennsylvania, there was a group called the William Cameron Engine House, which was a fire company, and they had a fife and drum corps. Hmm. Fife and drums were very popular in those hmm. days. My best friend's father played snare drum, and down the street from me, a house painter also played snare drum, and they both played in the William Cameron um, Fife and Drum Corps. Mm -hmm. At the same time, and this was, I was 10 years old, this was uh, probably 1943, uh, 
I, I, I was offered the uh, the job of by the band director because they were starting a new band at the high school of playing clarinet. Mm-hmm. I looked at the clarinet. I saw what the clarinet did, and I said, "I don't want to play the clarinet." <laughs> but, but my best friend's father with the snare drum and the, the painter down the street. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to play the snare drum. So I had uh, made contact with, his name was uh, Oscar Angstet. He was my first teacher. He was not a musician. He was a snare drummer by the seat of his pants. He learned how to play just by listening. Mm -hmm. So I went to him, and my first lesson with Oscar Angstet was how to hold the drumsticks. That was one week. The second lesson was how to change a drum head, how to put a skin head on a flesh hoop, because his idea was, well, maybe you know how to hold the drumsticks, but if your drum head breaks, what good is it? So he taught me how to, to do that. The third lesson was he told me, what notes were, what quarter notes were, and so on, and rhythm, and told me how to read. We, that went on for 13 lessons. And then one day I went for a lesson, and he said, John, I, I don't know anymore. I, I only know 13 lessons. You have to find another teacher. So my father and I looked around, and we found another person in a town called Sunbury, Pennsylvania. And in Sunbury, Pennsylvania, we found a, a note on someone's house that said, tap dance lessons and snare drum lessons. So we contacted the tap dance snare drummer. I took a few lessons with him and I realized that he was a better tap dancer than a drummer. So I made an excuse. I said, look, I can't take lessons with you anymore because I have a paper route and it interferes with my lessons. And that was 10 miles from my home. So then we found another musician. He was a band director in Milton, Pennsylvania, who knew what rudiments were. But he was the band director, so he knew all about all the instruments. He taught me for a while, and finally he said, look, John, I don't know anything more about playing the drums other than teaching you the rudiments. You need to find a real drum teacher. And he did. He said, I have a friend of mine in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, who is has a drum shop called Arts Drum Shop. Mm-hmm. I think he would be the teacher for you. And I said, okay. But the only problem was Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania was 250 miles from my home. Now you don't commute every week 250 miles. So wow. what my parents would do, and, and, and this is another thing, backing up for a moment, the, the principal of the high school that I was in and the school I was in was the band director. And he knew that if I took lessons, I would get better and his band would get better. So he let me take off a week of school and my parents would put me on a Greyhound bus. I would drive 250 miles or they would drive. And I would stay at YMCA in Pittsburgh for a week go to the drum shop every day and I would listen to others play. 
I would take lessons with art. I would talk to other drummers. I would learn how to repair drums. I became part of that drum shop. But I learned more than just how to play drums. I also learned how to become part of the business. And I think that was very important. Mm -hmm. And that went on until I graduated from high school. And at that time, the band director, who let me go to these uh, lessons for a week, and then I'd come back and practice for a half a year, and I'd go back and take my next lesson. He said, I think if you want to be a musician, you should probably go to the Eastman School of Music. I had no idea what the Eastman School of Music was. So uh, my parents and I got in the car, and we took an audition at the Eastman School. Fortunately, I made it. So in 1951, I went to the Eastman School. And for four years, I realized what I didn't know and how much I needed to practice to know what I didn't know. So I wasn't gotten involved at the Eastman School of Music. I was the only one in my class. There were only five percussionists mm -hmm. at the Eastman School through those years, those four years from 51 to 55. And, but I knew I had to practice. I knew I was behind. I knew that playing in a, a little band in Lewisburg, Pennsylvania wasn't enough. So I practiced hard mm -hmm. and I practiced and practiced and I learned by listening. I learned by self-study. I learned from my teacher who was William Street who was the teacher at the Eastman School and also the timpanist of the Rochester Philharmonic. So once I got through my four years, now, I don't know if I'm talking too much or too no, long. No, please, go on, please. <laughs> okay. Now, by the time I got to the end of my four years at college, uh, there was, uh, uh, no, as I, I was... 18 years old, probably, about mm -hmm. that time. And all 18-year-olds had to go into the service. Well, after four years at the Eastman School, learning how to be a musician, I didn't want to go and learn how to shoot a gun or anything like that. So here's the interesting part. In 1935, mm -hmm. the first percussion graduate of the Eastman School of Music was Oliver Zinsmeister. Mm -hmm. And Oliver Zinsmeister, at that time in 1935, auditioned for the United States Marine Band in Washington, D.C., and was accepted. It was a 20-year enlistment. So if we do the math, 1935 yeah. to 1955, that's 20 years. Yeah. So when Ali was ready to get out of the band, I was ready to get into something like the band. So I auditioned for Ollie's position. I was then accepted into the Marine Band in 1955. And I stayed in the Marine Band from 55 to 59. And at that time then, and the next part of this story is that in 1959, William Street, my teacher at Eastman, was deciding to 
take it easy. He'd been there 40 years and or almost 40 years, and he wanted to get out. And so he called me and he said, John, your four years is, is coming up. It's going to be over shortly. Are you going to stay in the band? I said, no, I don't want to, but I will if I can't find anything else. Mm-hmm. So at that point, uh, he said, well, how would you like to come to the Eastman School of Music? Be part of the summer school program and teach and also play in the Rochester Philharmonic. I said, yes, I would like to do that. Now, a little side of this story is that in 1959, there was an opening in the Philadelphia Orchestra. Mm -hmm. And so I had now, I could audition for the Philadelphia Orchestra, or I could go to the Rochester Philharmonic in the Eastman School. Now, another person who is a little, you know, unfortunately, he's not with us anymore, was Al Abel. Al Abel and I both auditioned for the Philadelphia Orchestra at the same time. Mm. He had spent many years in the Oklahoma City Symphony. I had spent my four years in the United States Marine Band. Now, let's figure this out. Who's going to know more about orchestra play, <laughs> Alan Abel or John Peck? Mm. Well, I said, what I, What do I have to lose? Mm. Al Abel got the job, as we all know. Yeah. And so I did not feel unfortunate for not getting the job because I sort of knew I wasn't going to get it when I went to the audition. And then I came back to the school in 1959 at the Eastman School, and I had been there ever since. Mm-hmm. I think uh, from 59 through, I retired in 2008, but then I, I did about eight more years of history of percussion, a class, because I always wanted to, I was always interested in the history. And so, um, I guess if you do the math, that comes out to somewhere in the 60s, 65, 65 years at the Eastern School of Music. So it's like I was in the right place at the right time for my whole life. And I am now in the right place at the right time talking to you about (laughs) where I've I've been. I hope this all makes sense. Oh, yes. It's also in my book, and, and the reason I wrote that book is because I did not want the history of the percussion department at the Eastman School of Music to get lost in someone's waste paper basket. Mm. I wanted to write about this business because then the school, and here's another thing that happened. This is apropos, actually, for where we are right now. The Eastman School has just celebrated their centennial. Mm-hmm. 1921 was the opening of the Eastman School, and I've been very fortunate to be around. Mm. I won't be around for the next one. I know that. And many of us won't either. But it's that's the way life is. But it's been a real privilege to be part of the Eastman School from the from the centennial 1921 and all the teachers that took place in the percussion department. There were three. I'm the, I was the second teacher at the Eastman School. 
mm-hmm. was William Street, John Beck, and now Michael Burr. Michael Burry, yeah. Yeah, and he is there now, and he's doing a terrific job. I'll tell you, he he's doing things that I know I couldn't do because his training, although he's one one of my students, he students he is very well into the uh, let's say contemporary percussion mm-hmm. solo playing. That's and that's Mike. Mike played in an orchestra. He knows all the excerpts. He teaches them. But he is he is uh, an excellent talent and one that's doing tremendous work for the Eastman School of Music and for all of the new percussionists that are at the Eastman School into the 21st century. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's incredible what uh, you told. And I get I got the pleasure to meet Michael Burrett a couple of years ago, also in Italy, and is pretty friendly man too and is incredible teacher too and and so as i said in the introduction also your students they're writing history you know so yeah definitely well it it was nice uh, um, you know let's face it you're a teacher you're a player i'm a teacher you're in a player Without our students where would we be francesca (laughs) right No. So it's our students that are carrying on the legends and the instruction that we gave to them mm-hmm. and or that we either gave to them verbally in a lesson or they took from us by watching us, listening to us and copy. I, I don't believe in cloning. I would never tell a student you have to do it this way. You have to do it the way you feel comfortable doing it, because there are many ways, as you know, in music to do the same thing. Exactly. I I I would like to uh, to remember. I remember so clear um, the master classes I translated of you, and um, and one of the things, for example, I remember is your love for sounds you know when you play on timpani or snare drum it's something also in your book you describe it so clearly the sound of the percussion instruments and i will never forget this this gesture to when you play the timpani and show to the students to go up you know and you decide you know you just um you build almost the space of the sound um then you create on the timpani and that's one thing i clear uh, have in my mind and try also to give to my students you know and i so i can one question is or one um uh yeah something i really noticed is that's your keeping searching and be curious and developing and uh, getting more insights and but the first Think you have all the time was the love for the percussion instruments. Sound is what we deal with in percussion. We, yeah. we don't. We do have scales, but it's not do re mi fa sol la ti do. It's not like that on the piano. But we do have our rudiments, and we do have all kinds of uh, uh, mallets and sticks and brushes and so on to make different sounds. All through my whole life. I have, uh, as you know, in timpani, I, I have created my own timpani mallets, mm-hmm. and those are that's my sound. 
I've also created a snare drum stick, which I don't know if you have or not, but that was my sound. And to me, what each of these things to do, the timpani mallets and the snare drum sticks, that is me. Mm-hmm. And that's, if I pick up something else and play, it won't be me. Yes, it'd be me playing, but it won't be me giving the sound that my mallets mm-hmm. give. So I think it's very important, and this goes for all students, that you must create your own personal sound. You must be the you must be playing with the sound that you think is what you want them to hear, what others to hear. And it's great as as we as musicians, um, it, it's neat to play, to be able to play music with others for others. And that's our whole thing. And we this is what we do. And so if I'm playing something for others that is not really me, because I don't have what I need, the right instrument necessarily at the moment. It's me playing it rhythmically. I hope it would be exactly in time, but the sound may not be quite what I wanted. So that's why I've always made my own mallets and sticks. And I have to think about now the sound of Steve Gadd, one of your students. Uh, when you listen to Steve Gadd playing drums, you recognize that Steve Gadd. And yeah. I I get the pleasure to meet him too. And I, I could also experience how calm he is. And I had also to think about your being calm. You're so calm. And so my question is, um, how do you do it? And um, if maybe also you try to pass this calm to, uh, to your students. Yeah, Steve is... One thing, of course, I admire his playing. <laughs> I know in my day when I grew up, Gene Krupa, Buddy Rich, those were the drummers. But now I have Steve Gannett. He's my idol, too. He's my, my drummer. <laughs> What Steve has is the is humility. He He told me once, he said, I really enjoy playing drums. And He plays like he really enjoys playing drums. He's not there showing you how much he knows. He just enjoys playing. Are you familiar with his new book? Yes, I do. I am. Yeah. Okay. I have a copy. I could show you, but you're familiar with it. And but that's Steve. It's all very relaxed. And this all came... When can I tell you a little story about when I first met Steve? Of course, <laughs> yes, please. Okay. Across from the Eastman School of Music in 1959, when I was came back to teach here, there was a music store, and in the music store were lessons given by people in the music store, and someone said, "You got to go over and hear this kid play." Why don't you go over and listen to him sometime? So I went over the music store, walked into the room, and there was this young guy at the time. Steve, I think, was about 14 at the time. Um, I listened to him play. And I thought, wow, he knows what's happening. It's the sound he's getting. Now, Steve's first teacher was his uncle, Uncle Ed. Uncle Eddie was his name. 
I never met Uncle Eddie, but uh, he must have been, I don't think, a, a, maybe a deeply schooled member, but Eddie had something that he had transferred into Steve. And then Steve also studied with another person in that music store. His name was Elmer Froelich. Mm-hmm. Now, Elmer Froelich taught Steve a few things. And then he also studied with Bill Street. Mm-hmm brother stanley street there okay. were two street brothers here there's bill street and stanley bill was my teacher stanley played percussion in the orchestra well then then steve also had took some lessons from bill street and then when uh, i got together with him uh, we then bonded and and his lessons were with me all through high school and when he then got to the end of high school, a lot of Steve's playing was, besides the drum set, was drum corps. He loved playing in drum corps. And all those rudiments and all that finesse that he plays with now and all those rhythmic sounds started with these the Crusaders drum corps, which is a corps here in Rochester that's very popular. So once he uh, did all of that, he then... Uh, got into his drum set play. He used to play drum set all the time. And when he sat down behind a drum set, like you mentioned a moment ago, when he played, you knew that it was Steve Gadd playing because he created a sound. And the sound was not only his technical sound, but his personal sound, the humility that when he played, He's, he wanted you to know this is the music. This is, this is not me playing a bunch of notes for them to impress you. Mm-hmm. And that's the way Steve's always been. He is, I think, one of the most uh, imitated and revered percussionists in the world today. There, there are so many good players all over the world. But when Steve plays something, you know, that's music. And that's important. It's like um, I I can feel he's playing, you know, about the heart, and I've experienced the same when I see you playing in Poland. It was the last time we met each other, right? Actually, in, in percussion festival in Poland, you were play. We played a piece of you, of course, with drums and percussion ensemble, and you you were just playing. You know, you were just fitting this space of the stage and you were just pure joy so <laughs> i saw the same and i see the same in steve get you have your sound you said sound is personality is not only technical but it's something saying about yourself so i really that's a really great honor for me that i've experienced that from you well thank you i I keep working. I still practice every day. Not much, but <laughs> anywhere right now because of the uh, the COVID thing that we just mm. went through. All of us, uh, all of the uh, the trios that I used to play in with the big band were all disbanded for for many years, and now they come back somewhat, but not not a whole lot, and so. Um, I'm not doing much playing now, but you know, I'm 89 years old, so I think I, I don't need to do a lot of playing now. You had so much experience, and I have to to um, 
I would like to come back to the versatility you gave to your students that I think you got also from the experience in this music drum shop. So you said before, it's not only important to, uh, yeah, how to play drums, how to play marimba, uh, but also all the aspects um, uh, around music. So business, for example, And um, so I would like to ask you how it was for you to, uh, as a young boy, as a young boy, to, to meet or to, um, to experience this world behind the music when you were a young boy. No, wait, could, could, could you run that by me again? I, I missed No it. problem, no problem. Um, you were talking about the experience you had with your percussion, uh, drums teacher art in the, in the drum shop you know, and uh, in this time you get in touch with a lot of drummers and you get in touch with, uh, uh, with the experience of, of uh, for example, building um, the instruments and uh, selling instruments of the music business and getting in touch with so many drummers. So I've, I see that your students um, try to have they have this versatility also in, in the world of the music. It's not just about playing, but all around this. Well, yeah. my whole philosophy is versatility. I, yeah. I think music is not just one little thing. It's many things. It's a universe. It's the world <laughs> music. And if you know that the sound that you want to make because of something you're playing from a part of the world, that's very important. So listening is, is a great thing. Listening and trying to emulate and imitate the sounds that you're hearing. Mm -hmm. And you can do that if you keep relaxed mm -hmm. and play to the ceiling, if you're playing in classical music, and if you're playing rock and roll, you play to the floor. Mm -hmm. It's just a different approach. And once you understand that and listen to yourself and listen to others, you know, I still learn, look, look uh, how many, look how many students, uh, look how many, no, look how many teachers I had. I had 1,816 teachers because when they came mm -hmm. to play for me, I learned something from all of them. Yeah. And that that's very important. So the teacher learns from the student and the student learns from the teacher. And as long, and I will admit, uh, Francesca, there was a time at the Eastman School and in the world we lived in uh, where students were coming to try and try and trying to, to teach the teacher what to teach. Mm. Mm -hmm. and, Uh, that was in the 70s. I experienced something like that in the 70s here, but it, it, it didn't work. You know, there was a time that uh, there was a bit of student uprest, uh, unrest and, and so on. And, and I, I sensed that uh, some students were trying to tell me what to teach them. Mm -hmm. And I understood it. And then I would turn it around and say, well, why don't you just try to teach yourself something? And, and that's where it comes from. And once they realized that maybe what they were trying to teach me from themselves wasn't really what they wanted, then they became more humble and went on and had a, a wonderful life. 
And so uh, that's that's it. We learn from each other. And if you keep that attitude, versatility becomes the primary concern. It, it look t- t- I'll do I'll sing two things for you. One yeah, please. let's take let's take two eighth notes yeah. in classical music. Well, we'll do more than two. Let's say in classical music, it, it go Now in jazz, it goes The same notes, you're looking at the same notes, or a more subtle thing would be maybe if you do that in classical, it's there's a difference. And once a student learns that, they become successful and they are then versatile. Yeah, and you told this in the book when you say you don't want to uh, be in a situation that someone is calling you and you cannot do this job. You want to say, yes, I can do this job. So I really... I was really appreciating this, that you gave your students the possibility to be so open-minded and, and so prepared and um, different, um, yeah, different musical styles. That I think is it's the key of, um, I don't want to say success, but yeah, of a good career because you, you, you are not in this position to have to say no. And I have to say personally, um, if I was in this kind of situation where I thought, oh, I don't know if I can do this job, I still said yes, because I wanted to do the experience. And that's something I've recognized um, and so clear in your, you have so much experience. So in a lot of uh, musical style. Well, I, I have witnessed your play. I have watched, I've seen you play many times. And Claudio, you you had duets and so on. And you have that same, you have that quality in your playing, that sound that I'd like to hear. And, and it's a sound that's pleasant. So uh, you, you've been listening in the right way to not only me or Steve Gadd, but to everyone. And you're taking from all of us something that you think is pleasant to you. And that's what it's all about. Thank you so much, John. That means so much for me to listen to these words there. Yeah, thank you very much. So, um, yeah, I mean, I try. <laughs> I try my very best too. And I think I want to keep going, being curious and open-minded and listen to a lot of music and a lot of artists. You can learn, as you said, from everyone. So everyone. Yeah. And um, that's, I have a Talking about learning from everyone, talking about inspiration. I have a question about um, if you, where there are the arts, for example, that inspired you. What inspired me? To are the arts to inspire you to compose or to play? Oh, well, I <laughs> to compose, I started writing back when... Uh, Back in the uh, 1959, 60s, 50, 60, so there was not a lot of good compositions for percussion. There was a, there was a lot of things being written, but solo percussion. Mm-hmm. Timpani, for instance, I did not hear 
anything on Tiffany during that period, let's say uh, 1959, 60, 61, 62. Um, so I said, well, I, I'm going to write something. I'm going to write something that I like, that I think is important. My teacher, Bill Street, used to say that timpani is just as important melodically as marimba. Now, you just don't play timpani by going bum, 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 bum. But there's a melody there. You have different pitches. So one of the early, not, not the first, but one of the earliest compositions that I wrote was the Sonata for Timpani. And I wrote it for Steve Gadd because it was Steve Gadd's senior recital. And I said, Steve, I'm going to write a timpani solo for you. So I wrote Sonata for Timpani. It was three movements. The first movement was very slow, and we could get the full sound. The second movement was jazz-like. I didn't say you should swing those notes. I said it came out jazz-like. And then the last movement was more of a Latin feel. And so I showed, I tried to show Steve playing in the different things that, that he understood and the things that he was good at. So from that point on, I got into writing music, things that I wanted to hear, things that I thought would be educational for students. I have a lot of yeah, a lot of um, music that I've written for Kendor music that it just shows the, uh, well, for instance, the snare drum. I, I wrote a thing called The Fugue, a little snare drum piece called The Fugue. That hopefully will teach them a little bit about The Fugue. And, and so anything that I wrote, I wanted it to be educational and something that, that the student could carry on into their musical style musical life and into their career that would make them better musicians. So I always had a, a point in mind. I just didn't want to write something to show everyone to play uh, really fast. No, fast is not necessarily the best thing, but um, it's, it's something. Uh, and, and if you, as you know, if you have four timpani and you go too fast, it sounds like someone taking a bunch of potatoes and rolling them up and down the drum heads because there's no articulation. Mm -hmm. So there's a point. And that also brings up the idea of mallets, why I made my own mallets, because articulation is very important on timpani. And if you use the wrong type of mallet, it, it doesn't sound right. Yes. So versatility, the timpani, the sound, it, the humility, it, it, the relaxation, it, it's all part of being a good musician. I agree. I really agree. And um, I think I can hear and I can, of course, listen in your compositions and I can uh, read in your book. As, as you said, it's always a matter of the idea behind, not just technique and fast and so on, but and showing what I can. <laughs> so, but it's music. It's you know. And um, my next question to you is um, also about inspiration, and it's about who of your teachers um, was like a mentor for you, because you were and you are still someone who was 
was really impacting the life of uh, your students. I mean, I read in your books some comments and someone said, he changed my life. So, and that's, that's a great thing. That's a big thing. So who were, who was your mentor in your life? Who was my mentor? In the percussion, in, in your percussion, you had so many teachers, but who were, who was, have you have a mentor or someone who was like an inspiration or an help in your percussion? Well, there, there, were, there were many, uh, many of them. For instance, Gene Krupa. Gene <laughs> Krupa was, we all idolized Gene Krupa. And there was Buddy Rich. And then there was Louis Belson. Now, Louis Belson is a great player. And he may not play as fast as Buddy Rich, but what Louis played made a lot of sense musically. So in the jazz area, I, I just like to hear those playing drums or drum solos that have a musical sense of some kind, not just a bunch of notes all over the place. And so there were, I can't, Francesca, I'm not sure I can come up with one person who was my <laughs> mentor, but I will say that my teacher, William Street at the Eastman School, became my idol. He, he was sort of like me in, in a way. Um, he always looked well-dressed. They spoke well. Now, my teacher in high school, my art Harvard at the drum shop, was also the same kind of person. He showed me about music. He showed me what it's like to be a musician. And Bill Street, then on the other side at the Eastman School, showed me how to take that attitude and put it into the classical repertoire. And so uh, there's two. There's the jazz side. There's the classical side. And as I said, I seem to remember saying this, that all those 1,816 students became my mentors because I learned from them. I learned from every time I watch someone play, there's something that I learned that maybe I should try. But right now, I'm not really doing much playing, so I don't have to think about that. I just sit back and enjoy them. Great. Now that's that's so that's a great uh, that's so great to listen to this, and um, I coming back to William Street and you. Yes, I I can tell that reading your book, I recognize a kind of parallel between you both. I mean, how William Street starts to teach percussion at that time, and then he was percussionist in the Rochester Philharmonic Orchestra, and then you talk talk about this call when you were in the Marine Band and starting the summer school um, teaching and then starting uh, playing percussion in the Rochester Philharmonic while he was playing timpani. And then you got the timpani, uh, you did, you got the job as a timpani player. And uh, when William Street retired, you became the, the uh, percussion, head of percussion uh, in, in the Eastman. So I clearly see... Um, Yeah, parallel to two two men. Um, that yeah, that's a clear par parallel for me, and it was really fascinating. I see. <laughs> so it was, it was a nice. I've enjoyed my uh, my trip, my career, or whatever you want to call it, because I not only 
heard a lot of great drumming, but I've met a lot of wonderful people. And now I have a question for you, for you about this: the most amazing concert you ever heard in your life that I ever heard. Yes, because I can tell. For example, one of the of the most amazing concert for me was in Berlin, listening to Paul Simon. <laughs> I will never forget Paul Simon concert, and uh, like I will never forget Steve Gadd in Basel. And I can continue. Of course, there is not one most amazing, but there are few. There's not so much. So, do what was your most amazing concert or few concerts? You say I will never forget these moments. Well, I, I, I don't know as far as jazz uh, what that would have been, but let me just tell you something that might give a little idea and thought about. Your question. Mm -hmm. The last concert that I played in the Rochester Philharmonic on timpani mm -hmm. when I retired in 2000, uh, 2002, I think it was. Was that right? I, did you, two did, or three. In well, Rochester, it was, my doubt. It was Mahler 5. Oh, God. <laughs> and the symphony part at the end. That's not a solo. Mm -hmm. However, I knew this was my last hurrah. And the conductor at the time was Christopher Seaman, who was a timpanist in the London Philharmonic at one time, and he conducted my orchestra here. So when we got to that part, my last concert, I thought, John, this is it. You better make it now. And I laid into that part, and I made it a drum solo. I made it a timpani solo. And he just looked up at me and smiled and waved his hand. He said, okay, go for it. That's probably one of the most memorable concerts that I have ever played when we got to the end of Mahler 5 and I was playing. Now, as far as the, uh, the jazz, um, I'm not sure I can come up with something as profound as I just told you about, about the end of, of that. Mm -hmm. And what about, what about, for example, your friendship and, in my opinion, opinion also, the memorable moments with... Astrid Ostrand, um, the Brush Brothers with Ostrand, you know, Anders. Oh. They were for me the memorable also moments in Italy when I saw you both on the stage, you know, the Brush Brothers there. <laughs> well, we were, yes, the, the Brush Brothers, yeah. Yeah, that, that was fun. Anderson is a great guy. He's a great talent. I like his approach to percussion. It's so relaxed. Anderson is giving you Anderson when he plays. Mm -hmm. He's not showing you that he can play vibraphone or something. He's giving you his life, his feeling. 
And uh, yeah, we did have a lot of fun with a brush brush. Yes, yeah, indeed. <laughs> indeed. It was such, such fun. And there was one of the moments for me where I could experience that, yes, you can have fun on the stage. <laughs> I mean, you know what I mean? When you play classical music and marimba solos and, you know, drum set and contemporary music, but then it was one of something happened in that moment. And, and uh, talking about something happened. Talking about, um, uh, how do you say it in English, uh, turning points or milestones in your professional career, I would like to ask you uh, this. You, um, we are now getting back in the past, in the moment when Street is calling you saying, hey, come on, you can maybe teach here in the summer school. And you were, uh, you had this um After these four years, uh, years with the Marine Band, there was a moment in your life um, really important because, as you described uh, before, you don't didn't know if you get the job or not. So then you get the job, and you had to communicate this to the um, head of the Marine Band. Um, and you describe in your book when you went to step into his office and said, "Sir." I'm leaving the band. <laughs> How it must be a brave uh, moment. I mean, it must cost a lot of courage. How did this moment felt for you? How how did you feel? Well, I was scared, of course. I was now a, a sergeant talking to a colonel, and in the military, that's pretty much like night and day. Either. <laughs> anyway, I went in and I looked him right in the face. I said, sir, I do not want to re-enlist. Now, there's a little background on this because this con conductor, Albert Chopper was his name, mm -hmm. was also from Rochester. Mm -hmm. He also studied violin in the preparatory department at the Eastman School of Music before he became a member of the Marine Band and eventually the leader. Yeah. So when I explained to him why I was leaving, he sort of understood that I was going to a place maybe better than what he could offer me by staying in the Marine Band. Because he knew what the Eastman School of Music was. He, he just sort of leaned back in his chair when I told him I'm going to leave. And he said, oh, no, we'll leave with something like that. Uh, but then he said, but I do understand why. And I want to wish you all the best. So it was uh, a little bit of uh, a double-edged sword. I stuck the sword in, but, then it, but I didn't turn it when I pulled it out. So he understood and I understood. But I was scared. I was a little scared going in there. I cannot imagine this this moment. I mean, uh, yeah, there would, must be a really turning point and also a big, yeah, big feelings in that moment. And did you have other moments in your life, in your professional career, so turning points or milestone where you felt like, oh, now it has to change or it has, something has to happen? Right. 
I just didn't want to stay in the service for 20 years. And did you did you have other moments in your professional career where you felt, okay, now I have to do something or it, something has to change now? Or um, did you have other milestones or turning points? I don't know if I'm describing it okay. I mean, yeah. Well, through, throughout my career, um, I was teaching at the Eastman School playing in the Rochester Philharmonic. Mm -hmm. Did I ever think that I would want to go somewhere else during that time? Yes. Mm -hmm. there, were, there were times when I thought to myself, maybe I would be better off going to a different symphony, maybe teaching in another school or another part of the world. You know, in Rochester, New York, it gets a little cold here in the during the winter with all the snow. And so maybe I'd be better off than teaching in Miami where I could do my lessons on the beach. No, but I'm just joking about that. But uh, uh, yes, a and I think that it's very healthy for an individual, regardless of what they're doing, to kind of think at times, what if I were doing this somewhere else? That's a very healthy attitude because you don't want to say, I'm going to do it without thinking about it. So thinking about it will give you a perspective that, that maybe you would never have by just packing up your bag and leaving without thinking about it. So, so it is healthy to think about things about other jobs. And I had thought about going to Toronto. The Timpani job in Toronto, Canada was opened up. And I thought, well, maybe I should go to play Timpani there. Uh, but I, I didn't. I stayed where I was, and the longer I stayed where I was, the more con convinced I was that I made the right decision. I understand. So it's also like to not get what we have for granted. You know, um, um, sometimes we get for. Yeah, sorry, please keep No, going. no, no, that's a very good point, Francesca. Don't mm. take it for granted. We should never take ourselves for granted because we should always try to improve what we're doing, whatever way we can, to keep life comfortable for us. Mm. I agree. I agree. And, and then my next question would be, How was your experience in the, in, in for example, in, um, I was reading in the introduction and your bio, you were um, percussionist in residence at the Royal Academy of, of Music in Copenhagen, sorry, in Denmark. How was for you this experience to get, to get, to go abroad uh, as an American, you know, citizen and coming to Europe and teach there? Oh, wait, I, I missed, I missed I'm the sorry. point. Maybe I was talking to... Uh, how was for you um, the experience coming to Europe and teaching like percussionists in, in residence, for example, in Copenhagen, in Denmark? Oh. oh. Okay, I... Uh, when Or I, in when, other cities. No, when I came to Poland back in the early... Uh, like, 89, I came to Warsaw uh, to, to Warsaw, and uh, uh, I I wasn't going to tell them that what they were doing was not right. 
Mm-hmm. I was just going to show them what I do. Mm-hmm. And if what I do is something that works for them, then we have some kind of a learning experience. So uh, I, I think my association with, with Polish people, uh, with the percussionists there, um, and, and also uh, it, it's not my position as a teacher to come and tell everyone, you're totally wrong. You have to do it mm-hmm. this way. No, I'm a teacher that's going to tell them, this is how I do it. Now try it and see if you like it. Mm-hmm. If you do use it, if you don't like it, let's go on. We'll try something else. So I think that was uh, that's how I felt. Wherever I went to teach um, and talk, I was not there to change. Mm-hmm. I was there only to show what I do. I have exactly to to say that uh, I that what one of the things I really appreciate in your work because I saw you um, working with students and other colleagues, you have a lot of respect for them. You know, you are really respectful, and that's something we all have should learn and have in your in our teacher career or whatever we are doing. Um, respect is the first thing, and I could keep on and on and on asking you question after question after question after question oh, i really <laughs> i i really and uh, but uh, times times is running and um i have one last question um to finish this podcast if you look back at so much experience you have is there any major advice you'd like to give to young percussionists I'd say that once again, would you? Yes, I'm sorry. If you look back at so much experience you had, you have, is there any major advice you'd like to give to young percussionists? Yes. And that would be to enjoy what it is that you're doing. And enjoyment becomes more enjoyable as you practice and it gets better for what you're doing and keep an attitude of respect for others because they're playing an instrument or music in general there are many ways to do the same thing and if you realize that there are different ways than what you are doing respect that other way and if there's something that that you can use from what they're doing, do it. You don't have to say, well, I got this from him. I got this from her. I got this from so on. No, just use it. And it then it becomes you. It's like it called, I suppose, in a generic way, it's called growing up. As you grow up in life, you learn that what you thought was everything that you needed to know when you were 16 at 26 you know a lot more and that moves on in life and that's way in music what you learn at 18 is going to also work when you're 28 but maybe it's a little going to be a little better and you can carry that through life so i think to enjoy and relax when you're playing Now, music is difficult. Some music is very difficult. But if you relax when you're in whatever it is you're playing, it becomes enjoyable. And another thing I think is very important is forget your mistakes. 
If you make a mistake, forget it. Probably no one else even knew you made that mistake. So just don't say anything and move on. Because there, if you dwell on the mistake, that means that all the good things you do are going to be suppressed because you're going to put the mistake ahead of what you can do. So those would be the things I would think that they need to do. Enjoy life. Enjoy playing. Don't worry about the mistakes and have enjoy your life playing music with others for others or by yourself for others. Thank you so much. With these words, we are going to finish this podcast. I'm really grateful, John, for this. And yeah, young musicians, make your ear so, so big and, and just put these words like in your brain forever because that's uh, John Beck saying you something really really meaningful and important thank you very much John um, I'm now closing the record and we can chat a little bit once Just again one thing yeah, before please you please to make it yeah of course okay. yeah thank you for giving me the opportunity to speak to you and to the others It's been a delightful time that we spent together, Francesca. I don't know when I'll see you in person, but maybe sometime in Freiburg. I might, might be there. Who knows? Who knows? I, mean, I would really love to meet you again, John. Thank you very much. As I said, this is pure gold. Thank you so much. An important inspiration for this first episode for me was Kenna Klosterman. She's mindfulness trainer. She's host of Creative Life. We are photographer podcast. I simply love her questions, her preparations. And uh, this was for me a really great inspiration for this podcast. So thank you very much, Kenna. <laughs> I hope you liked this episode and please check out our website percussionmasters.com. Stay tuned for more episodes. <laughs>